Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 170 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we chat with Yerima Osofsky of Dirt Queen NYC, all about moon gardens. The plant profile is on cilantro, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with The Last Word on Bumper Crops by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This episode, we're joined by Yerima Asofsky. She's a Brooklyn-based landscape and interior plant designer, the founder of Dirt Queen NYC, a garden design and plant care business, and she's written her debut book, Moon Garden, A Guide to Creating an Evening Oasis. Welcome, Yerima. Thank you so much for having me. We're so happy to have you on. I want to say that I read your book and it is beautiful. It's beautifully designed and illustrated, but also so well written. Thank you so much. So we're going to go into all about moon gardening and how you can have a moon garden in your own home landscape. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about Yerima and your background. So we like to ask our guests here on the Garden DC podcast, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins and a green thumb? Um, I would say that I came into plants a little bit later in life, although I would say that I did inherit some of my mother's green thumb. Hmm. And so she was an avid gardener? Yes, she was an avid gardener. She still is. And growing up, I did spend a lot of time in the garden with her, mostly weeding. Um, But also, I do have a lot of fond memories of going to the nursery with her and picking out um, the pansies that were my favorite colors for the garden. Hmm. And where did you grow up at? I grew up in Middletown, New York, which is about an hour and a half northwest of the city. Hmm. And that's, I think, the Hudson Valley region? Yes. So a great gardening area. Yes. Hmm. And were you interested in gardening when you went to school, or is that something you came to later in life? It's something I came to later in life. I uh, have a background in fine art, specifically painting. And after I graduated from college, I was working for artists as an artist assistant, mostly making paintings for museum and gallery shows. But it was after several years of this and a really rough breakup that I was feeling a bout of depression and I was in a rut. Um, And that's when I started working with plants. I found myself just propagating the plants that I had in my apartment and um, found my hands in the soil a lot. And I realized that it was a source of solace for me while I was going through this rough time. And I realized that I wanted to explore that. And I sought out opportunities to work with plants in Brooklyn And I also started selling the plants that I had propagated myself 
in vintage pots that I had sourced up and down the East Coast, a lot in DC, actually. Mm. And um, from there, I made my first customers and I started my own business selling the plants that I had grown. Wonderful. And so your garden now in Brooklyn, New York, do you have outside gardening space? I live in a Mm co-op building, so we have a communal outdoor garden, um, but most of my personal gardening happens indoors. Mm -hmm. And that communal garden, do you grow edibles there or or ornamentals, or is it a combination of things? It's a combination. We have an ornamental garden in the front, and then everybody has a planter where they can grow their own edibles and herbs in the back. But for my clients, we do primarily ornamental gardens. And those are mostly around the city. Yeah. And so transitioning from that, what brought you to starting Dirt Queen NYC or your social media? Well, after I was selling plants, to my neighbors. I actually, one of the good things that came out of the breakup was I was able to turn the second bedroom of my apartment that I had a great deal on um, into a sort of plant shop slash studio. And people would make appointments to come and consult with me about the best plants for their home environments. And they would bring photos of you know their their living rooms or their furniture setup and I would help them figure out which plants would thrive in which spots and from there um, my business Dirt Queen NYC became both an indoor and outdoor um, consulting and design business now I don't do the the studio appointment shopping anymore Um, We are solely a design business now, but it's been a really fun and sort of crazy trajectory to get to where we are now. And my partner and I work together now. Nice. I love that um, that you were able to integrate this passion for plants and it helped you, you know, therapeutically, you know, getting over that Mm -hmm. heartbreak, I assume. And then you're sharing that on with your clients. Thank you. Yes, it's been a really great way to build community and to just realize how powerful um, and the the healing effects that plants have on people, especially here in the city when we are more disconnected from nature on a day-to-day basis. It's really great to be able to feel that I have the ability to bring greenery into people's lives. Mm, So true. And yeah, I think that's so important, especially for people who are in urban locations um, to have a little bit of nature in their life and a little bit of exposure to that biophilic tendencies we all have. And so that brings us to your new book on moon gardening. And how did that come about? Well, moon garden came about in a pretty interesting way. Um, I, When I was starting my business, I was working seven days a week and at night as well. And um, the only time that I really took to decompress or unwind was when I would close my computer and put my phone away and my partner and I would go on long walks outside and observe our neighbor's gardens. 
at night. And I really fell in love with gardens at night during that time. And it became a nightly ritual for us where we would just walk and look for the moon, smell the flowers. And it was a really calming ritual that we had. Um, a couple of years later, the publisher Chronicle Books reached out to me with this idea for a book on moon gardens. And I was instantly intrigued and really excited to be able to take that love I had already and be able to dive more deeply into the world of nocturnal plants and nocturnal pollinators and everything that happens in the garden at night. Hmm. Yeah, I've been fascinated with moon gardening for years. And I think it's so funny that um, gardening is thought of as a early to rise, early to bed type hobby, but this kind of turns it right on its head. Yes, exactly. Um, it's It was really interesting and a lot of fun to write about a book that, or I'm sorry, to write a book about designing gardens specifically with evening in mind. Um, there are a lot of different design considerations and also some things that are the same as um, for daytime gardening, but specifically designing with a more limited color palette in mind is an interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. And we'll get all into all of that in a minute, but first let's define the moon garden for somebody who's never heard of that concept. A moon garden is a garden that comes alive at night with night blooming plants and night fragrant flowers. They're planted specifically with evening in mind with white flowers and silver foliage that reflect the soft moonlight. And they're a serene space to relax in after a long day. It's hmm. a great definition. And what I was so interested in your book was the long history of moon gardening. I thought of moon gardening kind of as starting with Vita Sackville West because um, she has such a famous one, but you trace it back much earlier. That's right. Um, there was a famous, sorry, um, there are two very old moon gardens, one in Japan, and that one is called the Ginkakuji, or Silver Pavilion, the Gardens of the Silver Pavilion. That one features a cone-shaped structure, that's sculpted from white sand. And it's thought that that was a platform for viewing the moonrise behind the mountains. And it's also surrounded by an expanse of finely raked sand. And that sand is in concentric circles and it's radiating outwards. And it's meant to emulate the ripples in a pond. Um, and so I think that that's a really beautiful way to depict water. Um, my friend actually was just there and she sent me some videos of it and it was, it's really magical. And another garden is the one called the Moonlight Garden or the Metabag Garden, which is across from the Taj Mahal. And that one was built in the 16th century. And it was built to pay homage to the Taj Mahal. And that one has marble fountains, white pathways, reflecting pools, 
And it was designed for the, for the Mughal nobility to enjoy the evenings, to enjoy the garden in the evenings after the, the day's heat had subsided. Mm, sounds beautiful. And then there's the, the Chinese pavilion gardens, like at the Huntington and Pasadena, that are focused on like the autumn moon or the moonrise festival. Yes, and that is something that my family celebrated a lot growing up, um, was the Mid-Autumn Festival. And then there was the, the famous Vita Sackwell West Garden that you just spoke of at Sissinghurst Castle. Yeah, and I think that one a lot of people are familiar with, just they might be familiar with it during the daytime as a white garden or a silver garden, but maybe have not experienced it in the evening. That's correct. And I think that in the evening, it's um, an especially magical time to explore the gardens, especially when the the fragrance of the night blooming plants are in bloom and the, the silver foliage and the white flowers are being reflected by the moonlight. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, up until a century ago where everybody had electricity. Um, you were having to deal with shorter length days, maybe getting your harvest in by the moonlight or finishing up your chores by the moonlight. So your eyes adjusted a little bit, but then you were looking at things that were reflected by the moon. If it was a full moon or, or close to a full moon um, and able to work longer during those periods. That's right. That's, that was the benefit of the the harvest moon in the fall. It is the it's typically the moon that's closest. I'm sorry. It's um it's typically I don't know how to say it right now. Yeah, it's like I would say the largest moon of the year. I know what you mean. Like it's it feels like it's the closest to us, the closest to the horizon, and one of the larger moons. Yeah, thank you. Um, that you can almost reach out and touch it. Yes, exactly. And it's so bright that it did enable farmers to work past sunset to harvest their crop. I always joke about when you're a beginning gardener and you're super caught the gardening bug, like you're super enthralled with your garden, that you go out to the hardware store and you buy one of those miner's lights and for your hat because <laughs> you don't uh-huh. want to stop especially so if you work nine to five or outside the home and you come back and it's already dark at five o'clock you know after um, daylight savings time on the east coast then you have no gardening time until the weekend so that's when you want to get some more light added to the garden exactly i actually have that on my my Christmas list this year is a new headlamp. <laughs> I've actually seen now um, knit caps with little headlights um, sewn into them now. And I think it's obviously for pedestrian safety, but I was like, Ooh, that's for gardening. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll have to look that up. That's great. So let's uh, turn to the practicalities of the moon garden and how you would start designing your own. Um, what's the first thing somebody would do when looking at their landscape when deciding where to place their moon garden? First, you want to really consider light and location. So when it comes to location, you want to really 
see where in your yard you have the best view of the moon and the sky. This can be a really great place to plant your moon garden. Hmm. See, I was thinking moon gardens could be great in a shady area or a shade garden because I always think of like hosta leaves that have or hookra or other shade plants that have like that silver reflection to them. But you are so right that a sunny open area where you can actually see the moon might be your best place for a moon garden. Yeah, um, I think that both can be true. There are a lot of really beautiful plants that you can use for a moon garden that work wonderfully in the woodland, like bleeding hearts or hostas with their silvery foliage. And those are absolutely great additions for the moon garden. But when it comes to where you might choose to have a seating area with plants surrounding that area, I would say it would be really great to have that be in an area with more open sky so that you can see the moon rise, for example, or stargaze um, surrounded by flowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And for the layout of the garden, um, does it have to be large? Can it be small? And what do you think about pathways and safety at night? Well, your moon garden can be incorporated into your existing garden. It doesn't even have to be a separate space, especially if you're limited in space. You can incorporate certain night blooming plants or um, more, you know, plants with white flowers or silver foliage into your existing garden. And you can also incorporate them into your pathways and your border plantings. Hmm. And I would think it can be as small as maybe just one container. That's right. You can just have containers on your patio with some accent fragrant plants or climbing up a trellis, like some honeysuckle or some passion flower. These are all great for um, your patio so that you can really enjoy their fragrance at night. But when it comes to um, safety and your pathways, I would really encourage people who want to enjoy the garden at night to have some soft lighting. Um, nothing bright, nothing that's going to attract too many insects, um, like no flood lighting or up lighting, but some soft amber lighting along pathways so that you can see where you're going, especially if you are having guests over and you're taking them on a little garden mm -hmm. tour. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, especially to have downward facing lighting. So A, it's not interrupting uh, the moonlight, and then B, so it's not affecting the wildlife. Exactly. It turns out that, um, well, I'm sure you know, and many of the listeners know, but blue lighting is much more hazardous to moths than amber lighting. So we really want to stick to more amber and yellow tones with the lighting that we choose outside and and really stay away from bright blue lights outdoors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think more and more studies are showing that. And it also affects the plants themselves. I've been reading some studies that show that um, plants exposed to high street lighting 
are getting really stressed, especially some of those older trees that they never have a rest period because those lights are basically like daylight all night long. That's so interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really important to really address that um, in city planning as, you know, say new lights are going in to be able Mm -hmm. to make sure that people know that. And so what are some of the elements you might add to that moon garden? Um, We'll talk about the plants and plant layering in a minute, but I'm thinking more like physical elements. Physical elements like, um, like trellises and structures for climbing vines to grow up, for Mm -hmm. example. And maybe seating or um, other reflective surfaces. Oh, absolutely. So in your moon garden, you really want to think about how you want to use the space at night. Um, So consider whether you want to be hosting parties or you want to be journaling in the garden and choose furniture and a seating area accordingly. And you'll also want to bring in a water element if you can, something reflective to reflect more light. This could be I mean, ideally a pond, but if you don't have a pond or a stream near you, then you can mimic this with a fountain. Even a small fountain can work to create the sounds of trickling water, um, which is very relaxing at night. Yeah, I think a nice little tabletop recirculating fountain you know, adds a lot to the garden and helps to cut down some of that ambient noise as well. So Yerima, other than reflective surfaces and that cooling, trickling, maybe recirculating fountain in the garden, are there any other elements you would add, non-plant elements to a moon garden? Definitely you want to add some soft lighting with lanterns or string lights Um, as we spoke a little bit about earlier. And candles are another lovely addition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love the look of like hurricane lanterns in the garden. So beautiful. Exactly. Hmm. And what about statuary or anything like that? Bird baths are a beautiful addition as well. They not only offer a reflecting surface, but they also invite birds during the day. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about um, the layering and texturing of plants now. So we'd already talked about, you know, you want white flowers and silver foliage, um, but you don't want everything to look the same during the day. So how do you achieve that? You really want to play with scale and texture best way to create uh, first a backdrop for your moon garden is to use um, evergreens as your structural layer. There's so many different evergreens that make great background plants for your for your more showy perennials and flowering shrubs. Once you build out your structural layer then you want to really create um, a lot of different undulating layers with your shrubs and your perennials, just like you would 
in your daytime garden. All of these design principles are the same, but you're focusing on plants that are specifically fragrant or um, more luminescent at night. So you want to play with different sort of textures like um, fine textures like ferns or amsonia and mix those with bolder textures with larger leaves like those of a rhododendron or maybe an alocasia if you want to bring in some more um, tropical type of plants in your garden for the summertime. Yeah, I think there's many of those tropical house plants that you can bring out in the summer that enjoy having what we call a summer vacation that would lend it themselves really well to a moon garden. Exactly. What are some of your favorite tropical plants to use? I do love alocasias. Um, I think they make a really nice accent in both indoor and outdoor spaces. I love birds of paradise mm. for that same reason they're also mm-hmm. very easy to take care of and um are not particularly finicky with water you can neglect them for a couple of weeks indoors at least outdoors and in the sun you would need to water them more regularly um i love monsteras but that's more for indoors i would say mm-hmm. um But when it comes to other, there are so many tropical plants that you can do outdoors um, and grow as annuals in your moon garden, like um, Nicotiana and um, Moonflower is the most notable one, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always think of um, the night-blooming Sirius uh, as one that's, you know, the, I guess, poster child for a moon garden. Um, that people would have this as a house plant all year, and then as soon as it's starting to bloom, maybe take it outside to enjoy. Absolutely. It's it's really amazing that that can be in your indoor moon garden. Um, they're so easy to take care of. Their flowers are so beautiful, and they have such an interesting backstory, too. Hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that backstory on the Night Blooming series. What can you tell us about it? Well, they famously bloom only one night a year. So it's a really special occasion when they do bloom. And historically, people have been gathering for centuries even to celebrate the opening of the flowers, typically around midnight. And even Marie Antoinette, when she was imprisoned at the tower, um, it's been said that she requested this particular house plant in her cell so that she could enjoy it and watch the blooms open. And she even commissioned an artist to capture the flowers in bloom. Hmm. Yeah, even on uh, Death's Door, I think that might have given her a little bit of solace. (laughs) Especially, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's get into some of our favorite moon garden plants. And in in the book, you detail some that are just beautiful. And one of the ones that's a favorite of mine, just because I love the scent, is the mock orange shrub, um, Philadelphus. And that one can be a little bit large in your garden, though. 
Yes, absolutely. That one, you need a lot more space for. They make great uh, hedge plants along your property line. Um, they are so incredibly fragrant. I remember walking with my sister in Santa Cruz and um, there was a hedge of mock orange and we just stopped in our tracks and we ended up spending a ridiculously long time just like taking pictures of each other in front of the plants and just inhaling their fragrances. So that's also a favorite of mine. Hmm. And it's funny that some plants open up their flowers more at night because they must be attracting a night pollinator of some kind. Yes, that's right. So certain plants open their flowers at dusk. Other plants wait until it's fully dark to open their flowers. But the reason is to attract nocturnal pollinators like moths and bats to their pollen. Hmm. And then other flowers are, you know, day blooming flowers. They start to close up towards the evening. So obviously those would be ones you wouldn't um, add to a moon garden necessarily. I'm thinking uh, specifically of tulips, but are there others that close up for the night? Yes. Yes. Um, Diurnal plants will close up for the night. Poppies are another example. And you want to really focus on the ones that stay open both day and night. And plants that are fragrant during both the day and the night also work wonderfully for your moon garden. So, for example, peonies or lilacs are great in your moon garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we just did um, a profile of spider flower, and that's one that I think practically glows in the moonlight. I love spider flowers. They're so beautiful, and I love them in both white and also pink um, I think both are great in the moon garden. Another personal favorite is passion flower mm. um, as a twining vine in your garden. I think they're so gorgeous with their whites and their ombre purples. Mm-hmm. And I think any of those um, white blooming daisy type plants, um, you know, anything from chamomile to Nippon daisy, those would be a great addition to the moon garden. Exactly. They're really vibrant at night, especially when they're planted in groups. And chamomile is wonderful because then you can even use it to make tea that you can drink in your garden. Mm-hmm. You know, surprised that you included a variety of daylily in your book as well, because, of course, we think of daylily as just blooming one day, closing up at night and just dropping its little, like I call it, the rolled up cigars on <laughs> after that point. So what's that variety of daylily? That one is a citron daylily, mm. and that one has a sort of yellow-orange flower, um, and it is very unique in that it is night-blooming. Mm-hmm. And it does have a scent to it as well. It has a really lovely lemon scent. Mm-hmm. I'm growing citron, but I have never checked it out at night, so that's added to my to-do list, just <laughs> to check it out when it's blooming at night now. Absolutely. And lavender is another really great option. So easy to grow, so fragrant, and also gives you that silver foliage when it's not in bloom. Mm -hmm. Are there other great silver foliage plants that we could add? Sure. You could do artemisia. You can do, as an annual, you can do dusty miller. Mm -hmm. That one is particularly shimmery at night. Um... Hmm. 
I'm thinking of, I have a couple pots of Dichondra Silver Falls, and that must be gorgeous at night too. It is, and it's really great in containers cascading down from the lip of the container. I love that one too. And Lamb's Ear is another really great ground cover to do. So um, you also include Hydrangea, which I thought was really interesting addition to a moon garden. Hydrangeas are a great staple for your moon garden. Um, I love hydrangea panna colada, but um, my favorite is the oak leaf hydrangea because it's native and also the hydrangea arbor skins. And they just have the most voluminous orb-shaped flowers that are also subtly fragrant, but very sweet. I do really love the fragrance of them. They bloom in the summer when a lot of other plants might not be in bloom because mm-hmm. it's too hot. So you can really rely on them to bring you like that luminescent uh, floral display mm-hmm. in the hottest summer months. Hmm. And then thinking about what happens over the winter time, I'm thinking hellebores, especially um, the hellebore niger might be a great choice. Absolutely. They're one of my favorites as well. Um, Hellebores are wonderful for your winter moon garden. Witch hazels, another really um, special, I think, native option for late winter, early spring blooms. Hmm. Um, Yeah. my. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that my fall blooming... Um, the Ozark witch hazel is just starting to open now. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, also, Magnolia grandiflora is an amazing moon garden tree. If you have the space, you can also do the little gem variety. And they have the most beautiful white flowers. And a lot of magnolia varieties are actually um, pollinated by beetles and fragrant at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the scent wafting off magnolia on a summer evening when kind of the wind is still and you're just sitting there. You could just drink it in. It's so strong. So let's talk about some of the ways we can enjoy our moon garden. So we've talked a lot about the sights, obviously, and the textures and things and the fragrance that you experience. Do you think your senses are heightened at night that you notice the scents more? Absolutely. When when you're outdoors at night and your vision fades, it's as if your sense of smell grows stronger. So it's really a, a garden of the senses. And you want to plant flowers that are particularly fragrant that you really love. And sound is, is really important too. Um, I would say that It really depends on how you want to enjoy your garden at night. If you are the type of person who loves hosting, then your moon garden can be a really great place to entertain and have dinner parties um, and full moon parties, moon garden parties. And if you are more interested in just relaxing in your garden at night, then you can make it a space to relax and meditate or write in your journal after a long day of work and use it as a place to transition from 
your day mode to your night mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like in your book how you talk about some meditations and rituals, and you also have some journal prompts, but let's dive into some of those um, rituals. So one of them you mentioned is charging your plants. So I've heard of charging your crystals in the moonlight, but I've never heard of charging your plants. So that was a new one to me. Yes, um, it's it's very similar. Um, but um, the reason I was inspired by that was because Tibetan Buddhist monks meditate on their plants and they chant mantras over the plants and charge them with energy and healing powers. And so I, I took that notion and I really thought that that could be an interesting ritual for people to practice in their own garden. Um, it's a way to really quiet your mind and channel your energy towards your plants. Um, and you can do that in whichever way, you know, speaks to you. You could just, you could sing to them if you want. You can talk to them. You can um, just be with them and water them and express your gratitude to them. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And I love the, the story about the Tibetan monks and that they're charging them with this positive energy because they're growing healing plants and herbs. So they're thinking that this will be passed on to the person who then experiences that healing. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they make these jewel pills that are medicinal and full of um, remedies to treat people with illnesses. Mm -hmm. And then you also talk about plant in intention. What do you mean by that? So that's about um, transferring an intention that you have onto a seed and poking a hole in the soil and planting that intention. So as you watch your seed grow, you can watch your intention grow with it. And it's a way to connect with nature and um, really commit to something and watch it grow. Hmm. And I think you relate to, and this kind of goes with your name, Dirt Queen NYC, um, actually putting your hands in the soil and experiencing that texture and that feeling. Yes. When I was going through my, my uh, depression, I found that handling soil and just sifting my fingers through it was very healing and planting plants, of course, was very healing. So I think it's a great exercise to also help center yourself and quiet your mind just to feel soil and um, its texture. And it can also help you understand the different kinds of texture and which plants prefer which kinds of soil. Um, but more fundamentally, just thinking about how um, soil is the medium from which all plant life grows is pretty astounding in itself. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, all of us will return to the soil at some point. Hmm. And then you also include some activities like stargazing, making a moon altar. What would you put on your moon altar? I would put things that were sentimental to me from my travels. So shells that I've collected on the beach or rocks. Um, 
I would also put candles with scents that I really like, like jasmine or gardenia um, or incense. And I also really like the idea of putting a cut flower in a bowl of water to recreate that um, reflective energy that you can have outdoors just on your altar. Um, and use your altar as a space to meditate or set intentions in the evening. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that transition time between day to night or could be work to relaxation to, to set that frame of mind. I was thinking that a moon garden would be especially useful for somebody who has trouble sleeping or getting to sleep at night um, to establish that kind of routine. Yes, absolutely. I find that a nightly ritual with a cup of herbal tea like chamomile um, is really relaxing and it helps um, it helps me personally uh, get ready to sleep. But also there are a lot of other teas that you can drink and grow in your garden like chamomile, lavender, and passionflower, all of these, and uh, mugwort are great for sleeping, although mugwort is known to cause lucid dreaming. So Mm. that's more of a special occasion. (laughs) Yeah, I would say you want to plan around that one. Right. (laughs) For sure. And Um, if you don't, um, sorry, if you don't want to drink it, you, because it is bitter, you can um, hang it, you know, a bundle of it, if it dried, you can hang it in your bedroom too, as another option. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a great choice and it's used so extensively in, in Chinese herbalism, you know, in this powder form as well. So Yerma, thank you for sharing all this knowledge of moon gardening and some of those rituals that you enjoy and have given you solace. How can our listeners contact you to find out more? You can always reach out to me on my website, dirtqueennyc.com. And my Instagram is DirtQueenNYC. And Moon Garden is available to order through my site or on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or bookshop.org, and everywhere books are sold. Mm -hmm. And any last thoughts for somebody maybe who doesn't have an outdoor space to do a moon garden who wants to also enjoy the benefits of one? Yes. Absolutely. There are so many um, houseplants that you can grow to have a moon garden indoors. And especially if you don't have a lot of light, you can rely on silver foliage to illuminate your garden and add some shimmer, especially when your um, plants might not be in bloom. But for plants that can that you can rely on for blooms, I would suggest excuse me, I would suggest orchids or anthuriums because they will give you long lasting blooms. And for silver foliage, I would suggest skindapsis and all of its varieties and variegated foliage plants like uh, pothos enjoy or marbled pothos, uh, variegated syngoniums and diffenbachia. These are all really great plants for a moon garden. Um, If you have a lot of sunlight, then I would absolutely suggest some night-blooming cacti, like the queen of the night or the rickrack cactus. 
They only bloom one night a year, but it's a really special night and they're beautiful cacti regardless of their blooms. Um, and if you have low light, then you can really rely on snake plants, especially with all of their different variegations and patterns. Um, and they're also actually um, night well, afternoon blooming and night fragrant. And so are bromeliads, which I was surprised to learn while I was doing research on the book that air plants and Spanish moss have night fragrant flowers. Hmm. Yeah, I've never noticed that on either of them. That's great to know. And Yerima, I want to thank you so much again for joining us on the Garden DC podcast and wish you much luck with your new book launch. Thank you so much for having me. Cilantro plant profile. Cilantro, coriandrum sativum, is an herb that is used in cooking as a flavoring and spice. Cilantro is a pretty plant with lace-like foliage that blends well with ornamental plants in a container or grown in the ground. It is in the same family as dill, parsley, carrots, and celery. It grows best in full sun and well-draining soils. Amend your soil with compost and plant it from seed directly into the ground. It is usually quick to germinate and you can start harvesting it in a matter of weeks. Harvest it by cutting off some leaves with kitchen scissors and using them fresh or drying or freezing them in an ice cube with olive oil. Cutting the leaves regularly keeps the plant healthy and encourages more leaf production. Cilantro is loved by several garden pests, so you may need to put a cover cloth over it to keep them out. Cilantro grows best in the cool seasons of spring and fall in our region. When the weather heats up, the plants bolt. That is, they set flower and seed. That is a good thing, though, as you can collect these edible seeds, also known as coriander, for planting next season and use them in the kitchen as a spice. Cilantro, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my Ozark witch hazel is blooming and smells wonderfully. I also have toad lily in bloom the Nippon Daisy, the PJM Rhododendrons have come on for their second season of blooming, and a miniature lilac is also sending out new blooms. Over at the community garden plot, we did a successful end of season harvest party, including donating lots of produce to Harvest Share MD. And our new issue of Washington Gardener Magazine has just come out. That's October 2023. In that, you'll find a cover story on growing pumpkins, a fun story on some killer trees with aliopathic tendencies. We share some fall landscape care tips with pollinators in mind. We discuss whether murder hornets have made it into our region and is there such thing as a native cover crop? We spotlight the fig nominal container fig 
and share five steps for saving tuberous begonias as frost approaches. Our plant profile in that issue is salvia black and blue. And if you open up to page five inside, you'll find our monthly reader contest. We are giving away a $100 gift certificate to buy bulbs online from flowerbulbs.com. And you'll definitely want to enter that contest. A few local gardening events that you might want to attend include the Foodie Fridays Food is Freedom talk on Friday, October 27th in the evening. And the fee for that is $10. It takes place at the Josiah Henson Museum and Park. And you need to register for that through montgomeryparks.org. Also happening locally at Brookside Gardens on Wednesday, November 8th at 6.30 p.m. is A World of Discovery, How Science and Heart Can Make You a More Ecological Gardener with speaker Nancy Lawson. That is free and open to anybody and they have waived the online registration. You can just register at the door. And Sandy Spring Museum is hosting Homegrown Mushrooms Workshop on Sunday, November 12th at 2 p.m. There is a $10 fee, and you can register for that at sandyspringmuseum.org. And uh, the Friends of Brookside Garden are hosting a brunch fundraiser for Brookside on Saturday, November 18th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's Brunch with the Birds and Blooms. And this gala fundraiser uh, is taking place, as I said, at Brookside Gardens itself. Tickets are $125. You can purchase them through friendsofbrooksidegardens.org. Happy gardening! garden lovers this is ray eaton founder of discover garden tours i'm here to invite you all to join us next april and experience the beauty of dutch gardening and horticulture on our discover the netherlands tour please join us and speaker author and social media influencer kathy jentz for this once in a lifetime garden adventure we'll visit private and public gardens flower shows and auctions and much much more highlights include the kuchenhof gardens Portis Botanicus Leiden, and the Flora Holland Flower Auction. The tour dates are from April 16th through April 25th, 2024. Full details and registration are available on our website at discoverourtours.com. Remember, space is limited, so if you don't want to miss out, I would highly recommend signing up today. We look forward to seeing you in the Netherlands and sharing this unforgettable journey together. Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jets. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. 
included our 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word on a tomato bumper crop bonanza by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This story was shared to me by our owner and founder, Don Nicholas. Let me tell you about the adventure he and his wife embarked on this summer, dealing with the biggest, most bodacious tomato harvest they've ever had. It all started innocently enough in the spring. Don and his wife have always enjoyed gardening together, but this year they decided to go all out with their tomato plants. They built new raised garden beds, invested in some top quality soil and organic compost, and chose a diverse selection of tomato varieties to cultivate. Little did they know what they were in for. The tomato plants thrived in the warm sun and well-drained soil. As the weeks went by, they watched with amazement as the tomato plants just grew taller and bushier, laden with green orbs that promised a bounty of flavor. They were ecstatic, but slightly nervous about what lay ahead. July rolled around, and that's when the real excitement began. The first ripe tomato of the season was like a harbinger of things to come. It was sweet, juicy, and absolutely perfect. Their mouths watered just thinking about the feast that awaited them. As the days passed, they found themselves inundated with tomatoes. It seemed like every morning a new cluster of red, yellow, or green orbs appeared. Their excitement turn into a delightful challenge, how to manage this tomato explosion. Well, here are some of the strategies they employed to tackle their monstrous tomato harvest. They had a harvest party where they invited friends and family over to help pick the tomatoes. It turned into a fun social event and everyone left with fresh, ripe tomatoes. To make the most of their harvest, they decided that cooking and freezing made a lot of sense. Batches of tomato sauce, salsa, their freezers were soon stocked with containers of homemade goodness. They embraced tomato-based meals. They had themes of tomatoes in their meals, salads, tomato and basil bruschetta, 
tomato soup, and pastas with fresh tomato sauce became regulars. And then they decided to freeze their tomatoes. For those days when they just didn't have time to cook, they'd wash them, freeze them, and knew that they would come in handy for soups and stews during the colder months. And then they even decided to have a tomato swap. They organized a neighborhood tomato swap where other gardeners could trade their excess produce for tomatoes. It was a great way to diversify the harvest. And sun-drying. They even tried sun-drying some tomatoes, and those turned out to be a fantastic addition to the pantry. They'll add a burst of flavor to their winter dishes. As summer turned into fall, it was a time to look back on the tomato adventure with a sense of accomplishment. They had conquered the biggest, most bodacious tomato harvest they have ever had and learned a lot in the process. Their garden had not only provided them with an abundance of delicious tomatoes, but also brought friends, family, and even the community closer together. It reminded them of the joys of gardening, the rewards of hard work, and the importance of sharing the bounty with those around them. This has all given me great ideas on what to do with extra produce in years to come. So if you ever find yourself faced with an overwhelming tomato harvest, remember that it's a challenge worth embracing. Get creative, share the love, and savor every juicy bite of those homegrown tomatoes. This was the last word on the tomato bumper crop, Bonanza, with Christy Page at foodgardening.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine. Music.